0: It's a series through 1 Peter. And uh, we're nearing the very end of that series. We're in our final mini-series of 1 Peter. This is part two of a three-part series. And I want to begin by just uh, observing, and I was reminded of this again this week, that there's an assumption in our culture that religion and religious beliefs are very personal things. Matter of fact, the baptism that we'll enjoy celebrating today can sometimes lead to that impression as well—that religion and religious beliefs are fundamentally about me, and they're about you, but they're not about anybody else. I believe what makes sense to me. I practice what works for me, and I don't think that it's too much to say that in our culture at present. Religion and religious beliefs have become primarily, if not entirely, self-centered and self-serving. I listened to a video blog this week by a fairly popular online personality, at least popular for me, maybe nobody else knows who it is, Uh, but his name is Hank Green. And uh, with respect to the question, do you believe in God? He said the following, I'm not going to help you with that. That's going to have to be something you figure out on your own. And if anybody is telling you different, then they're wrong. This is a question for you to answer for yourself. You have to feel good about your beliefs for your own sake. Now, there's a sense in which that's true, I suppose. I mean, in many ways, making a decision to follow Jesus is deeply individual. I mean, that is what Jesus himself said, right? You have to be willing to forsake father or mother, sister or brother, for me. That's a very individual decision, right? Especially spoken into a society where everything was about the family and everything was about the community. So there's not to say that it's not a deeply personal decision, but the way of describing Christianity that Hank Green has sort of embraced there, that you have to... you have to be happy with your beliefs for your own sake, makes it sound as though religion is really for you, and for me, and for no one else. And if we've been reading Peter adequately, and I know you're dependent on me to read him adequately, and I might be leading you astray, I don't know, I don't believe I am, but if we've been reading him adequately, it would seem that nothing could be further from what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Yes, we make an individual decision, but the decision we make is not for us. At least not only for us. It's for the world. So we're continuing in our final mini-series from the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter and I've entitled all the sermons in this final series Embracing Sacrifice. I'm using sacrifice differently almost each week which is a little unfair to you but I'll try and bring you up to speed. And all three of the sermons in the final mini-series as has been true of Peter's teaching throughout the entire book they emphasize the Christian belief that there is one role model that there is one exemplar there is one person to whom we should look to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, to understand what it means to discover God's will for us and for our lives. Jesus. Jesus is our exemplar. And according to Peter, the mystery that has been revealed to us through Jesus is that the way of God in this world can only be walked if we will embrace sacrifice. If we will embrace Suffering, we'll talk about that today, if we can embrace death and dying. Jesus has shown us that the secret to true contentment, the key to holiness, to godliness, the holy grail of, of humanity's search to be a creature made in the image of God, all of that will remain inaccessible and unattainable so long as we cling to our lives, so long as we cling to our security so long as we cling to our happiness. In the final turn of the page, we have to embrace the reality that whatever road we must walk in this world, it must end for all of us, save those who are, who are alive when Jesus returns. It must end in death as His road ended, and in dying. And according to Peter, we can embrace the temporariness of this life. And that's what I'm getting at with that language. We can embrace the temporariness of this life and the inevitability of its end because of three pivotal obstacles to faithfulness that Jesus has overcome. Evil, self-centeredness, and suffering. And that's each of our... Sermons in this series deals with one of those topics. So last week we explored Jesus' overcoming of evil and of evil powers. And if you like thinking about the demonic and demonic powers and that kind of intrigues you, then you want to go back on the website. I'm not going to talk about that at all today. You go back on the website and you can listen to that. Today we'll discuss the overcoming of self-centeredness. Now, I'm glad everybody came back. Sometimes that chases everybody away. And that's the title of the second part of our mini-series, Self-Centeredness is Overcome. And I don't say that just for you. As I was writing the sermon this week and studying and thinking through it, I, you know, I'm the pastor. I don't really get to not come on Sunday, but I thought about it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so if you have access to a Bible and you don't already have it open, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to be, be looking today at verses 1 through 11. But before we turn specifically to Peter's teachings this morning, I want to make some uh, further uh, observations. And one is important to me because I remember talking about the cross and talking about self-centeredness and talking about selfishness um, as a youth pastor. And one of my more keen youths, he's in ministry today, he asked me, really, really, are we not to have any thought for ourselves at all? Like, is the idea that God wants us to never have any concern at all for our happiness, at all for our well-being, at all for, like everything is about somebody else? Like I should be living in a box and giving out away everything I have? Is that what he wants for us? And I thought, that's a good question. At times in the gospel can kind of feel that way, can it? But there, I don't want to just say self-centeredness is all evil. I just don't want to say that. I don't think the Bible lets us say that. And so what I want to observe is that human self-centeredness, that's sort of a negative way of saying it. Human self-interest, is there any good way? It all sounds bad to us, doesn't it? But human self-centeredness is essential in some ways to what it presently means to be human in the world. We know that, right? We know it. We might not say it, but we know it. I mean, the world's a dangerous and it's an unpredictable place. And it seems generally true to argue that to thrive and to survive here, we need to be protective of ourselves. Don't we? Now, it's true that most religions on earth, and Christianity is no exception here, they champion the value of caring for others and the worthiness of laying down one's life in appropriate times for greater goods. But even with that said, from the time we're born... Throughout the entirety of our earthly life, the world and our natures condition us to be most concerned with ourselves, to be penultimately concerned with those that our lives are most intimately entangled with. And that's the problem. It's not that we have self-interest. It's that it's all we have that becomes a problem for Jesus. Whether the selves we're protecting are ourselves as individuals or our families or our neighborhoods or our faith communities or our states or our nation or our preferred schools or our preferred sports teams. Can you believe people come to blows over the Red Sox? Or our races? or our groups of friends, or whatever else we identify as essential to who we are, whatever it is that we're protecting, humans are most often unapologetically and primarily self-centered. Matter of fact, when you get into the whole realm of motivational speaking and trying to figure out how to motivate people to do things, one of the, the best ways to do it is find some way to make what you're trying to get them to do personal for them so that they'll defend it. So if I can make you believe that you're protecting yourself and your family and your loved ones, you're going to do almost whatever I ask. If I can convince you of that, and that's the trick, right? Because in the end, we are so self-centered. But for Peter, it would seem that if there was any one inclination that Jesus resisted consistently and with integrity throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry, it was this inclination towards primary self-centeredness. Don't mishear me. As I've said, the gospel does not ask us to have no care for ourselves. Remember, Jesus' teaching, and it came right from the law of Moses, was that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, not love our neighbor instead of ourselves. So we have to always be careful about how we understand it. But even so, if we're to hear Peter, we must recognize that our role model, our exemplar, Jesus, he did not come to earth primarily for himself. He came for the world. Jesus did not preach and teach and heal and minister essentially for his own self-promotion. If that were the case, he wouldn't have told so many people not to tell anybody what he did for them. I mean, they always did it anyway, but he kept imploring them, don't tell anybody, don't go and brag about it. I mean, there seems to be the sense that Jesus did not come primarily for that. Jesus came to do the will of God and to lay down his life for those who had made themselves enemies of God in the world. Jesus did not embrace the maxim "us or them." He, he he gave us a new saying, a new maxim to live by, me for them. And for Peter, through Jesus human, through Jesus human slavery to self-centeredness has been overcome. And for those of us who follow Jesus in Him and through Him, we can discover a freedom that will actually allow us to love our neighbors as ourselves. That will actually allow us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. That will actually allow us to lay down our lives for those unworthy of that sacrifice. Through His overcoming of self-centeredness, Jesus has revealed three things, I think, in the passage we're going to look at today. And this is what they are. I think He's revealed the path to freedom I think he's unleashed provisions for freedom. And I think he has identified the product of this freedom. What will result? And those are the three things we're going to talk about today. So first, Jesus has revealed the path to freedom from self-centeredness. And it's probably the hardest word Peter has to say to us. Look we'll at First Peter chapter 4. I hope you're there. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And again, I'm reading from the New International Version. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore... We're going to stop there for now. Now, I'm sure you heard it. It it, it doesn't matter what translation you read this in. If you go back to the original Greek or whatever else you want to do, it's pretty straightforward what Peter is saying here. What we wrestle with is not what he's saying, but what he means. And what he means drives us crazy. But, But we know what he says. Even on a cursory reading of this passage, it seems clear that Peter has suggested a connection between human suffering and human freedom from the tyranny of sin. There's a connection to be made between those two things. And sin, I've been defining it this way. Maybe I haven't told you I've been defining it this way, but I think Peter defines it this way. I'm sort of understanding sin for Peter as self-centeredness, as 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 self-interest that leads us to put ourselves above all other people, to think primarily about our own needs and those closest to us. I think for Peter, that's at the heart of how he's understanding sin. And so I'm going to assume that throughout our discussion today. But is it interesting to you that when Peter says, look to Jesus, he's our example. We're not used to looking to his sacrifice on the cross, right? Well, that's something he does for us we couldn't have done for ourselves. That's something that he does and I don't have to do. That's why he did it, because I couldn't do it. So I don't have to worry about doing that. I might have to do a lot of other things Jesus did, but I don't have to worry about the sacrifice on the cross. That's really his work on my behalf, right? But Peter has used Jesus as an ultimate example for us. That through suffering, He conquered sin. That's for us. It's important for us to grasp, because I believe Peter has declared unequivocally that the path to freedom from from sin and its fundamental rooting in self-centeredness is a road of suffering. To say it another way, The path to freedom for Peter, like Jesus' journey to the cross, is a path of sacrifice. Matter of fact, I think Peter's getting at the idea that the less we allow ourselves to suffer, the more we try to avoid it, the more we refuse it, the more worldly we will become. Sometimes when we hear the word suffer, I don't want you to get the wrong idea in mind. I mean, we think of something horrible and painful, like I should be, you know, uh, injuring myself or wearing... what? What is that? Uh, some people wear like a clamp on their leg that's supposed to tighten up and make you bleed so you can feel the pain. It, remember, we talked about this last week. Not any suffering will do. It's not suffering for suffering's sake that's in view for Peter. And, it, and the suffering we're talking about, it's not always extreme. In many ways, it could be considered by most people to be minor. But... If we face the reality, most of the commands that God gives us in His Word will require us to suffer in one way or another if we were to really live them out. When God asks us to love our enemies, don't tell me that's not a form of suffering for us. I mean, that's suffering. When God asks us to stay in unhappy marriages and continue to love without any realistic expectation of reciprocation, we suffer. That's no easy word. We suffer. When God asks us to forgive those who've sinned against us, We suffer. When God asks a single person to remain abstinent while unmarried, that person suffers. When God asks us to deny our most basic instincts and submit our fleshly desires to His will and His way, no matter what they are urging us to do, we suffer. In fact, for Peter, suffering and freedom are so intimately tied that he could say, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But I want to I inverse that so you can hear what he's saying because I think we hear that and we don't hear it. Let me reverse it. Maybe the converse is also true. Think about this. Those who refuse to suffer in the flesh will never cease from sin. You think about that. That's when I thought, okay, I can't come to church this Sunday. <laughs> And this decision to embrace suffering out of submission to God, it's not one the world finds understandable. It's not one that the world thinks makes sense. I mean, let's face it, many of us Christians find it hard to embrace as well. In fact, Peter indicates that this kind of thinking will be so distasteful to the world that it won't just elicit disdain from them. It will elicit persecution, likely. Continue following along with me as I pick up reading in First Peter 4, now in verse 4. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the Gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. In the summer of 2012, maybe some of you have seen this, a blog by a a little known Mormon psychologist went viral. His last name was Weed. It's a strange last name. But I give you the name so that you can fact check me like many of you do. He decided to announce on his blog that he's a homosexual who also happens to be happily married to a woman. Do you remember this? Anybody read this thing when it came out? He came out to his parents in his teens, so this was no new revelation to him. And he knew he was a homosexual when he proposed to his wife. And she knew that too. And he has chosen to live a devout Mormon life, married, faithful, committed, monogamous, and parenting with one woman. And all despite the fact that he remains primarily attracted to men. Now, he's not a Christian in an orthodox sense, but as a Mormon, he does take many of his ethical cues from the Christian scriptures. And many in our country have been scandalized by his decision. I mean, there was a firestorm when he wrote that. For some, he's choosing to live a lie, to be untrue to his nature, to deny himself love in its truest, most visceral sense. For others, he's setting a dangerous precedent, which might lead to increased oppression of LGBT identifying people in religious contexts. Well, for others like me, he's a living example of what we as fallen humans often must do when we embrace the suffering we must embrace and we endure what we must endure to be the people God has called us to be in this world. If suffering and freedom are as intimately linked as Peter has declared, then it's no wonder, is it? It's no wonder that a culture so perplexed by a decision to deny oneself, to suffer, to sacrifice the visceral benefits of physical attraction, that that same culture is also plagued with countless rationalizations and justifications for ungodly living. If Peter is right... And we should expect that a culture in which suffering is to be avoided, in which suffering is understood as a primary evil, and in a church in which the Gospel tells us we should never have to suffer if we follow God. In that kind of a world, if Peter is right, people will be produced who are overwhelmed by evil. They will never be free. They'll lack the self-discipline and self-control. And they'll quench the Spirit of God's work in their lives. Because the path to freedom is a road of suffering, we must not only be willing to suffer, but we must embrace suffering. We must learn how to suffer if we're ever to be free from the pernicious self-centeredness that has enslaved us. Jesus has revealed that the path to freedom from the dominion of sin, the path to freedom from our slavery to self-centeredness and self-interest is a path of suffering. If we're looking for a God to follow who will not ask anything of us, if we're thinking Christianity is going to solve our problems and not make more of them for us, if we're thinking that we shouldn't have to sacrifice the things we want most to follow Jesus, then we are slaves to sin and we will never be free. And holiness will look like a myth that some old person told us because they didn't know what the world was really all about. Jesus didn't just deliver that knowledge to us. He didn't just say, hey, this is the road, guys, choose it. Go for it. He gave us provisions for that journey. He gave us things that we could use to strengthen our resolve in these ways and through God's grace become victorious. He's graced us provisions for the journey. And I think we find them here in 1 Peter chapter 4, now in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I mean, Peter gives us good news in those verses. It's good news if we have ears to hear it. Our suffering will not last forever. God will bring judgment, and, and though we may be condemned by the people of this world, we will be vindicated in the end before God. That's good news. But that's not really Peter's driving point here, that assurance. He's already said that. We dealt with that last week. Peter's assurance is that God has given us gifts that will enable us to become what He's called us to be, but only if we use them as He's intended them to be used. God calls us to be clear-minded, self-controlled, and to love each other deeply. And all of those commands are rooted in the reality that God has graced His church with gifts, which, if used for the purpose they've been given, will strengthen us and bring victory over self-centeredness in our lives. They'll set us free to love as God has loved us in Jesus. Now, Peter has emphasized, and this is what I'm saying, that these gifts that are given to us, and each of us have them, they're not for ourselves. God has given them to us that we might use them to serve others and through that become free this is particularly poignant in Peter's example of hospitality, because hospitality was expected in the ancient world. It's probably one of the most expected graces a person was supposed to give. If somebody showed up on your doorstep, a traveling teacher, once you became a Christian, a traveling preacher, you're supposed to open your doors to them, you're supposed to care for them. But you can imagine how that expectation was abused in the ancient world. And it became so abused that by A.D. 100, just a, a few years after the death of the last of the apostles, the practice had been so abused that it became general law in Asia to offer hospitality for no more than three days to one person. After that, they had to find some way to support themselves. The sense here for Peter is that love, which is an action in this text. It's not so much something we feel as it is something that we do. Love when it causes us to suffer. The using of our gifts when it makes us have to pay a price. When it requires sacrifice. When it costs us more than we might otherwise be willing to give. That kind of love covers over a multitude of sins. So there are two realities at work in this section of our text. First, God has given gifts to individuals in the church which are to be used in service of others. That's why we have been given these gifts. God gives spiritual gifts to His people for the purpose of caring one another, for the purpose of supporting one another, for the purpose of building into one another. But secondly, those who use their gifts in such a way they will grow by the self-discipline and the suffering that such service produces in their lives. And if we're to be faithful stewards of the gifts that God has given us, we must be willing to suffer if we are to be free. Using the gifts that God has given us is often difficult. But I think Peter's insisting we're only going to discover the freedom that Jesus enjoyed when we use the gifts God gives in the way Jesus used the gifts that were given Him to serve God's people particularly when that service causes us to suffer. So the path to freedom from sin and self-centeredness is a path of suffering. And the provisions God has given us on, for this journey, they come in the form of spiritual gifts that have been bestowed on us, whether they are material gifts, whether they are uh, other kinds of gifts that we have, gifts of love, hospitality... Paul goes into great extent, he lists all these different kinds of gifts that God gives to people. But God's provision for the journey comes in the form of those gifts which He intends us to use in service of others. And if we use them as they're intended, the use of them is going to set us free from the self-centeredness that digs so deep into our hearts we can't see the other end of it. And finally, Jesus has unmasked the product of freedom. Those who have truly followed Jesus, those who have embraced the freedom that comes from embracing sacrifice, those who have used the gifts given in service of others, and they've tasted the suffering that comes from having to do that, and the freedom that comes on the other side of the willingness to suffer. These free folk can be recognized by the product of freedom in their lives. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 4, now in verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in Him all things may be praised. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The product of freedom is praise of God in the world. In other words, those who have been set free from self-centeredness through suffering in the service of others will reveal, will reveal the character of God to the world. They'll fulfill their role as priests. Do you remember what Peter called us priests? Now, we're often left with the impression in the church, maybe this is just me, but I, I have a feeling it's more than me. We're often left with the impression in the church that God expects us to make the gospel of Jesus appealing to the world. Do you know what I mean? I mean, much evangelism training in the church acts as though um, we are salespeople and Jesus and the gospel are our product. And we need to make that product appealing. We need to find some way to make it appealing. We need to find what people want. We need to tell them that Jesus does it for them and then they're going to buy it. And that's our goal. But I'm not convinced that slick marketing is evangelism for Jesus or for Peter. It's not our task as Christians. I'm going to say this strongly. You know it's my opinion, but I'm going to say it strongly. It's not our task as Christians to make the gospel appealing. Peter has already told us that the gospel is not going to be appealing. In fact, when people see this life lived out, it's more likely that it will result in our persecution than in a high five. He's already said that. We're not called to make the gospel appealing. We're called to make the gospel clear. We're not called to make sure the world likes the gospel. We're called to make sure the world understands the gospel. And there is a world of difference between those two agendas. When we try to make the gospel appealing, we emphasize its positive aspects and we save the negative ones for later. Right? We emphasize forgiveness and freedom and eternal life and happiness. And we avoid the discussions of suffering or the need to maybe have to lay down something you don't want to lay down in your life. Or the need sometimes to be persecuted or abandoned by friends. Or We used to say that maybe more. Maybe that's all we said at one time. But now we try not to say that so much. But when we try to make the Gospel clear, we become less concerned with how people respond to it and more concerned that they see Jesus for who He is. Matter of fact, you could read the Gospels and you could get that, right? That the disciples are always trying to make Jesus more appealing and he's always trying to make himself more clear. And every time Jesus makes himself clear, people run away. And every time he does something appealing, they flop to him. And the disciples seem to think, let's do the appealing things. Those are working. And Jesus just keeps saying these things that chase people away. We make the Gospel clear with our words, with our values, and with our behavior. And it has to be with all those things. The worldly mind is consumed with self-interest. And that's part of the difficulty with trying to make the gospel appealing. It encourages that self-interest and makes it grow. And harder. it makes it harder to eradicate. But the mind being transformed by Jesus is learning to be consumed with the interests of others, even our enemies, even the interests of our persecutors. And when we embrace a path of suffering using the provisions that God has given in the form of personal gifts and talents for the sake of others and giving of ourselves, sometimes to the point of deep hurt, we may not make the gospel more appealing, but we will make the transforming power of the gospel clear. It's not our task to make the world want Jesus, but it is our task to make the world see Jesus. And for Peter, this is the product of our freedom from self-centeredness. Now, I've been blessed on several occasions. There's a lot of blessings in being a pastor. There's blessings in being a Christian. And I've been blessed on several occasions, and some of you have, to be part of a person's journey to Jesus, to be part of the encourager who got to help that and assist in it. And that's really edifying. But I've also had the blessing of being the obstacle that has kept people away from Jesus. Have you been that? That's a blessing But sometimes. It's not always a blessing. It depends on what you did. But... I remember some years ago, a time when a young Christian I was mentoring, and I say young Christian, he was older than I was, but young in the faith. And I was mentoring him, and he got all excited. I mean, he couldn't have been more excited. Like, he came into my office, he said, we're going to have lunch. And I'm like, okay, well, let's have lunch. Why do we have to have lunch? And he said, because I have got a convert for you. This guy is ready. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he's like, he's, he's going through a divorce. His wife's taking the kids. He's he's lost his job, he's facing financial ruin, and it looks like he could have some serious health problems. I mean, this guy is in the bottom of the barrel. And I told him he needs Jesus and he needs to talk to you. I mean, he thought I had him, you know, he was teed up and I was right, and I'm not a good golfer and he didn't know it, but he found out. (laughs) He, He set up the lunch, I went. And I do have to say, I've never so disappointed two people at one meal in my entire life. <clears throat> my parents might argue with that, but um, from my perspective anyway. I inquired of, the, of this gentleman uh, by, by saying this, something like this. So Joe, tell me. Joe tells me that you're interested in becoming a follower of Jesus. Tell me more about that. And he went on to lay out about what Joe had told me. The shambles that his life was in, his need for something that would fix all these problems. He needed to save his marriage. He needed to save his job. He needed to save his health. And he said, if Jesus can do that, then I am ready. And my, my mentee, there were beaming. I mean, he's like, oh, this couldn't be any easier. And my next words were not easy to say, but I still believe them to have been necessary. And I can't tell you exactly what I said I was in the moment, but I can tell you what I meant to say. And those of you who know me well enough know that there's not that much distance between my mind and my mouth. I try and insert distance. It's not always there. It just comes. And so I think it's it's got to be close to this. If you ever talk to my mentee he lives in Chicago, if you're there, I'll let you know. You can talk to him. Um, he'd probably know better. But I think I said, "We don't want to follow Jesus. You don't want to follow Jesus. You want Jesus to follow you. Picking up the messes you make and fixing the problems that you wield in the world. Following Jesus isn't about fixing your life. It's about the person you are dying. I accomplished two things with those words. This prospective convert decided he wasn't ready for Jesus after all. And that was sad, though I did talk to him for quite some time. And my mentee looked like his soul had just been sucked out through his nostrils. Have you seen it? (laughs) I'm not sure he ever understood what I was sensing in that gentleman. But we're called to speak, to believe, and to embody the gospel. Not that the world might find it appealing, but that the world might see God and God's way through us. And that they might see it clearly. Biblical evangelism never engages in bait and switch. We never tell people what they want to hear, only later to tell them what they need to hear. That is simply not evangelism in the Bible. And for Peter, not only has Jesus overcome the forces of evil in this world, but He has overcome pernicious self-centeredness. If, if we will follow His example. And we who wish to share that gospel with the world must live out this overcoming of self-centeredness in what we say and what we believe and in what we do as well this is the life of faithfulness to Jesus it's not an easy one and no one ever said it would be Well, no that's probably not true probably some people did say that it would be let me say with Hank Green they were wrong This is not an easy journey. It's the hardest journey we will ever take. But it is the truth. It is a journey to real life. It is a journey to discover what we were made to be. And we are not what we were made to be. So to become what we need to be is going to be a horrible and difficult and 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 stripping and bearing and coarse process. Matter of fact, it's death. Jesus says we have to be born again. That might mean something more if everybody was a mother to know what birth entails. I mean, the kids don't remember it. It's a horrible process. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's upending. It's destructive. That's what Jesus calls us to. He doesn't call us to it like the Buddhists do because suffering is good for you. You might as well get used to it. He says, because I have something more. But if you want to get there, then you're going to have to die. And you're going to have to let me kill you. When we come to those altars, we say, Jesus, take me a piece at a time. That's going to be a rough process. But He is going to make us into something that knows no end. That is full of love and compassion. That is full of the love of others. That seeks our own good, not at the expense of anybody else, but with those around us. That we live in a world embodied that's populated with those people where there's no more suffering or mourning or pain. Is it worth it? I think it's worth it. I live in a church here. I'm so blessed to be in the beginning. This is my one year anniversary, the first time I actually pushed for money here. <laughs> first before. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Hey. I'm still getting worked on. But I'm blessed to be here. Because you are a people that show me a little glimpse, not always and not consistently, like I don't even think, but you show me a piece of what heaven is going to be like, and when I see it, I say, that's a world that's worth dying for. That's a world that's worth giving up the things I want right now for. That's a world that's worth sacrificing temporary pleasures for the world that God views ahead. And it's worth working the hours that we work for each other and donating the hours that we do and serving the community in the way we do. It's worth it because that world is a world worth dying for.